Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. We're with you till five o'clock trying to sort through the wreckage of the Jays losing two games to nothing to the Seattle Mariners. It's funny. Uh, the short of the series, there more there seems to be to go through. Had you made it to the next round and lost three games of two to the Houston Astros or something, that's a nice, easy one to break down. You had a good year. You lost to the best team in the American League. Uh, trying to figure out and pick up the pieces from an unceremonious 2-0 sweep at home, no less, to the Seattle Mariners. A little tougher. Joining me for the next hour to sort through all of that of Sportsnet, of At The Letters, is Ben Nicholson-Smith. Ben, how are you? Pretty good. I, I thought I might be on a plane to Houston around this time, uh, getting ready to cover the Jays and Astros in the division series, but uh, happy to be here with you. Uh, the circumstances, obviously, not what we would have guessed or, or hoped for. Yeah, certainly not. And even acknowledging that a three-game series is something close to a 50-50, uh, you don't expect to draw two tails in a row. That's uh, that's the way 50-50 works anyway. I felt like 10 tails in a row, yeah. the way things unfolded Saturday. I mean, to be up I mean, they're up eight to one, eight to one. And so that's a game you absolutely have to win. And yeah, I mean, maybe 15 tails in a row. Like it felt like they were just missing on every possible decision, outcome, everything. And they lost. I do want to get to game two. Before I do, I wanted to, to get at least one small positive thing in. Game one, get to do color commentary next to Ben Wagner. For you, how great an experience was that getting to do, getting to be on the call for a playoff Jays game? So cool. It was a fantastic experience. Very grateful to have had the chance to do that. And now can always say that I was in there for one of those games. I, I think that, you know, to to be in there dialed in watching every play, it's uh, it's been a great experience all year to be in there with Ben for a lot of those games. And so, yeah, the outcome was definitely not um, not there for the team or the fans, but personally, certainly a, a cool moment for me. What game? I know you had game one. Arden Zwelling had game two. I've gone back and forth thinking about this, which one would be harder to do because game one was more straightforward, but also the energy got sucked out of it really, really early. I imagine the last, the back half of that game was a little bit difficult to find the juice for, whereas it would just have been hard on Saturday to not have an, even trying to be as objective a journalist as you can to just not be having a meltdown. Yeah. I mean, I, in game one, there was no issue with finding the juice for me. I mean, it's, it's a playoff game. It's even a four run game. Like I'm completely dialed in with a ton of energy there, you know, and also shout out to Ben Wagner, right? I mean, this is, I want to say his fifth year doing Jays games. I want to say his 19th year doing professional baseball games on the radio. And so, you know, that's a, that's a long tenure that he has definitely put in some years. So very cool to be beside him uh, while he's doing some playoff games. And I think we all thought that there would be a chance to do some more. I was excited to do a lot more Jays playoff games on the radio. Yeah. I, uh, the, the 0.001% silver lining of, Oh, at least I'm off on Sunday. Cause I would have worked Sunday. Of course was uh, useless because I couldn't do anything. I just sat there like replaying the game in my head. It was not, I can't even imagine what these guys are going through. Uh, on their side. Yeah. The players you mean and the coaches. Yeah. And yeah, I think um, for it's so interesting, like watching how they handle it because, and of course in 2021, we weren't in the clubhouse. We weren't mm -hmm. in the locker room afterwards. So you, you can see the shot of Vladdy uh, sitting there in despair and you talk to players afterwards on zoom. This time we were back in there in the clubhouse after the game for the first time following a playoff loss since 2016. And 
it's interesting because some guys seem to move on actually kind of quickly, like almost in a way that, and of course this is just, you know, the, the sports mentality or baseball mentality of like, all right, onto the next, we tried our best, like flush it, you know, move on. And other guys are in, yeah, I don't want to say despair, but they are wearing it really, really hard. Um, so it's always interesting to observe that. Yeah, and I, you know, I won't put you, uh, won't put you on the spot for for names uh, about that. But um, so you you wrote this after Saturday night's game, and you your piece, which was excellent, you can find it at Sportsnet.ca, focused a lot on the missed opportunity here. And sometimes I I have felt around the Blue Jays that there's a misalignment sometimes of where they are on the timeline. And that's because Vlad and Bo and Manoa are very good and very young, but the rest of this group, well, Kirk's on the young side too. Um, the rest of this group is not super young. They're one of the youngest position player teams, but they're on the older end for pitching staff. George Springer's 33. Um, They have a lot of money committed. When you talk about missed opportunity, how much of that is, well, you made the playoffs and every one of those is an opportunity and how much of it is, well, it's only going to get tougher from here in kind of the, the macro. I think there's a lot of both in there. And I know you were just running through some of the numbers from a payroll standpoint, clearly Vlad, Bo, uh, Tay Oscar, these guys are going to get more expensive and they deserve to get paid. But what that means is you have less room to work with for other additions that you need for this team. So that's part of it. Plus, George Springer, Ryu, some of the big money acquisitions, they're not getting younger. So maybe they can hold their own. Maybe Springer, for example, can keep doing this, but he's probably not going to peak. It's probably going to go in the other direction at some point. So that's part of it. And then beyond that, too, it really is just that anytime you get to the playoffs and not only get there, but they got there healthy, like their their team was performing. I, I obviously Springer was banged up and Bo was banged up and, and a lot of guys were, but good enough to play. They were there ready. And in my opinion, they easily could have made a run to the World Series. Like I, I just I think that opportunity was there for this team. And so to flame out in two games, not winning a single game, this core is still awaiting its first playoff win. They had a massive opportunity that they blew, and I'm not putting that on any individual person, but it's still undeniable that that is a game that they have to win, and they didn't win. So, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty devastating, I think, to have that opportunity in front of you and and let it slip away the way they did. I also, and maybe you feel differently, maybe you feel the same, the fact that it was to Seattle, and if it's Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay is a worse team than Seattle and a worse team than Toronto, but at least they're a team that that's been through it and is a little further along. There was almost the feeling of that Seattle didn't just win that playoff series, but they're a young team that is on the come up. Cleveland is the youngest team in the playoff field altogether. Baltimore is knocking on the door. Not only are you not actually a young team when it comes to the big things that matter, like how much are you getting paid in arbitration? Um, but there are also a couple other American league teams ready to roll. Um, yeah. How much of that played a factor in for you? Because that, that was part of the feeling for me, seeing a George Kirby at 25 close out a playoff game, seeing Julio Rodriguez at 21 at the top of the lineup. And had you got to a Sunday, it's Logan Gilbert, another 25 year old stud coming in. Yeah. So, you know, if you're the the blue Jays, 
you can frame this, and we already heard John Schneider do this, and some of the players as well. We'll see how Ross Atkins frames it tomorrow. But, you know, you can frame it as, hey, this actually was a step forward. We won one more game. We actually made it to the playoffs. <laughs> that sounds so <laughs> sad. Like, including the playoffs, you won one more game than last year. Guess what you also did? Lost one more game than you did last year. Uh, without a doubt. And and so, you know, this is a group that, in my opinion, like, if you keep taking baby steps like that, by the time Vlad and Bo are free agents, okay, maybe you flame out in the ALCS. At a certain point, you have to take massive steps. You have to take leaps, multiple leaps at once. And again, not every team is capable of that. But I believe that the 2022 Blue Jays had the talent to do that. And so that's where it really is a missed opportunity for this group. Vlad, prime. Bo, prime. Like, these guys are great players. They're healthy. This was the chance not only to take a tiny step forward, but to push it really far. And who knows, maybe make the World Series this year. And hey, look, if you're going to spin as a front office and a coaching staff and a core that that 2020, even though it wasn't a real playoff appearance, um, was valuable experience. And that last year missing the playoffs by one game was a valuable experience because the guys had to sit with that. What are you going to do? Spin this as a valuable experience? You know, it'd be more valuable than getting knocked out in two games in the wild card, having an actual playoff run that would have, you know, even if you didn't win, that's a lot more experience. Start with winning one game. Yeah. You know, with winning one playoff game, which is something that Vlad and Bo have still yet to do. And I, I'm not putting that on those guys. It's not their fault. They're, but they're the most important players. So when we talk about this core in this window, they're the focal point. And, and, and look, like they gave everything they had, but at the end of the day, they still have not gotten even to that one point of winning a single playoff game. So even though this is a season that included a lot of individual successes and collective successes, I, I don't think we can call this season a success for the Blue Jays. And that's a tough thing to, to sit with after the entire amount of work that went into this. Speaking of sitting with, I, I don't know how much detail you guys got on this, but we did hear John Schneider mention that George Springer spoke to the team after the loss, um, did he get any intel on what that message was from Springer and or how Springer's doing? Still don't know how Springer's doing. Hoping to learn more about that tomorrow. And of course, hoping that Springer's okay physically. I mean, that was a really scary collision. Um, and don't know the specifics of the message either, mm. um, but would love to know that as well. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, sorry to put you on the spot for no, that one. Then. No worries. Go so, for it. George Springer's 33. That performance-wise, when he was available, he didn't really decline this year. He's probably not a center fielder on merit at any at this point anymore, but he's still George Springer. And you have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette and Alec Manoa. We, we know what this team looks like foundationally for next year, barring major, major changes. However, we also know that with rough arbitration estimates that we now have from Matt Swartz at, at MLB Trade Rumors, my friend and yours, um, that... Assuming a couple of non-tenders, the Jays have between 172 and 175 million penciled in for 18 to 20 players, depending on who you non-tender or whatever. This year, their budget ended up around 175. We don't need to necessarily get into each dollar here. We can, we've got a long off season to discuss non-tender choices and stuff like that. However, when you look at where they are financially and roster construction wise, what is the answer to the big question of this offseason, which will be, how does this group get better? I mean, like, I think this this team was good enough to do a lot of damage. I don't think that it necessarily has to be way better in 2023. 
I think even holding serve would be good enough to compete for the division because regardless of where Aaron Judge ends up, he's not hitting 62 homers again, right? So, you know, if he goes somewhere else, then the Yankees are a shell of themselves and the Blue Jays will be the best team in the East opening the season. Now, they might go out and sign Carlos Correa, probably should. We'll see what happens there. But even if they bring Judge back, he hits 35 or 38 or 42. It's not 62 again. So, you know, that's one way where I think the Jays, even if they are the same team with a balanced schedule, I see them competing for the East. And that should be their goal. Because clearly, this weekend, seeing the Mets flame out, seeing the Jays flame out, this should reinforce you want that that buy. You really want that buy. So I, I guess I think you've got to find a way to hold serve. You've got to find a way to get more bullpen. You've got to find a way to get more starting pitching, obviously, with Stripling departing. And he's uh, open to coming back. He should be someone on their radar as they move ahead, of course. Um, but to me, it's pitching. And you have to be open to bigger things, too. Like trading Lourdes, of course, should be on the on the table. Trading a catcher, of course, will be and should be on the table because the Jays have other needs to address and only so many resources to go around. You mentioned Stripling. This is a tough one because part of the issue here with some of the pitching contracts they've given out not looking great so far, the the Barrios one, a question mark. Kikuchi, obviously front-loaded, so that one gets a little easier. Um, Ryu, uh, one more year on the books. Um, Ross Stripling's 32. Would you hit him with the qualifying offer, the one year, nineteen million, and then if he if he takes it, you you get a huge, you know, that's probably a lot of your financial flexibility for the year, but you don't have to give him term. I would not. Would you? You would not. I would think about it. Um, it. It would probably depend on my confidence level in shedding some money somewhere else, um, which is something I I know I was going to ask you about anyway. The Hyunjin Ryu situation, and I know I said that we weren't going to go into the specific dollars, and now we are, but that's me. Um, baseball does not have the same insurance structure that the NBA has that I'm familiar with. Um, the NBA, you don't get cap relief unless you, unless a guy is out for, for the entire season. Um, you do get actual financial relief though in terms of um, the insurance on contracts now in baseball without the without a salary cap and the Jays are a good stretch away from the competitive balance tax so we we don't need to concern ourselves with that just yet but from a raw budget and payroll standpoint do they stand to get a little bit of flexibility back from Hyunjin Ryu being out for the season or is that still TBD well if they do, my understanding of, of these uh, situations, broadly speaking, is that the insurance kickback would come after the contract ends. And since Ryu has another year on that contract, a lot of the time, and I don't know this specifically with Ryu's deal, but a lot of the time what happens is there's a question of how many days were missed, how many um, stints on the injured list, that sort of thing. And then once the totality of the contract is done, you look back, and then there's a kickback based on that. So to me, that wouldn't happen immediately. That so it would almost affect the 2024 payroll more yeah, than anything. I think it's more of a big-picture accounting as opposed to something that would immediately create room for the Blue Jays. That makes sense. Um, so you mentioned the bullpen as an area to be addressed, and I wanted to talk to you about a look back at the trade deadline, but we can frame it even bigger. Um, this front office, since they've come in, has been pretty clear with how they – think a bullpen can and should be built when you're dealing with finite resources. And that's that 
Well, it's the least stable and hardest to project thing, so it shouldn't be where you invest your resources. Do they have to come off of that a little bit now? It's it's really interesting. Like I I think so let's start with where they are internally because I think they actually have a decent group coming back. With Almost them. everyone. Yeah, Romano, Bass, Pop, Simber. Phelps uh, is the only Mesa. free agent. And then right. you could argue uh, a Richards Thornton non-tender, depending, but... You've got the core back. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so that's a good thing to have. I also think, if I'm the Toronto Blue Jays, Nate Pearson is not starting games for me ever again. By the way, Nate Pearson uh, joining Tigris Deliche in the Dominican Winter League. Interesting. They want him pitching. That makes sense. Brennan Delaney of Blue Jays Nation passing that along. Very nice. So I, I think Merriweather as well. I, I think these guys are relievers. Let's not try to overcomplicate this. Bring them out of the bullpen, throwing strikes and throwing with a lot of velo and one good breaking pitch. That's it. Um, so actually, if you're looking at that combination of players plus Pearson Merriweather, I'm actually not overly concerned about the bullpen going into the season. Now, at the deadline, if they don't have enough, then it's the time to learn from last year, and it's the time to actually hand something over because we saw on Saturday they had a shortage of swing and miss, right? You don't get babipped if you're getting swing and miss on absolutely everything. They got babipped. And so I still th- I said it at the time, I think so now, that they should have added one more reliever. I'm not saying that's why they lost, but we're looking for factors, contributing factors, I think that's a factor. But to me, going into the offseason, this isn't a team that's desperate for relief. Like when I, I, I think their bigger need is starting pitching by far. And ha- so how do they navigate that? Because they have a lot of money given out to like it. It kind of feels like the message tomorrow. And I hope I'm wrong on this is going to be well, Kikuchi and Barrios will bounce back. Yeah, I mean. If you're the Blue Jays, you have to say that because you want those guys to read it and you and, want And that's to, $30 million, so yeah, you better I mean, bounce back. Yeah, exactly. You're not trading them either, so you might as well project optimism. Hope that Yusei Kikuchi scrolling through his phone. He sees the Ross Atkins quote and goes, yes, my GM has my back. So, I mean, that's that's what they will say, of course. I think internally, I know internally, of course, there are questions there, as there would be for anyone who watched the seasons that unfolded for those guys. So... You know, that's that's one part of it, but you need to replace Stripling, so you have to go out there and, and add. And as much as I would like to preach the gospel of Mitch White, he made that progressively harder as the mm-hmm. as the year went on. Still think there's some pitch design stuff that maybe he could be a guy, but I think at this point, if I'm penciling him in anywhere, it's either that first guy up from AAA or that long man in the bullpen, although I believe he'll be out of options next year. So Mm. that will be a a tougher choice. Um, This is the nerd of me. I I can't wait to get into a little later in the offseason some of the, like, who do you protect on the 40-man rule five? (laughs) Like, even, like, looking at the ARB estimates, it's like, okay, well, I'm non-tendering Trent Thornton, even though he's cheap, because I'm going to need the 40-man spot anyway. And going through it like that, I I think – Let's just throw it out there now. I wasn't going to do this, but I keep saying that, and we got an hour. We're jumping to, like, November pretty quick yeah. here. Let's Ka- go for Kevin it. Kevin Biggio projected to get $2.6 million in arbitration, um, and I, I bring this one up because I think we disagree on it, and um, Chris Black texted me about my take on it and disagrees with me as well. With Addison Barger needing a 40-man spot and Kevin Biggio basically being out of a role on this team by the end of the season when Whit Merrifield and Santiago Espelon were around, I'd be really tempted 
to non-tender. I know it's only 2.6 million projected. I know you could probably tender him and then turn around and flip him. I'd be tempted. I would not be tempted. This would be an easy tender. I think Kevin Vigio is a good major league player. Here's the other thing. If he does bounce back next year, you still have a couple more years of him. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like you're signing him to a one-year deal with two club options afterwards. You know that he's a good worker. You know that he's someone who's a professional, um, certainly a good teammate from what we can observe. I I think that there's a role for guys like that in the course of a six-month season because injuries will come up and he can give you, like his career OPS plus is 103. I know. It's not bad i know he's a the plate discipline makes him a league average hitter as weird as that is that's part of you know if you want an example of where baseball's offense is as a whole that's a good one but yeah i don't know it's a little bit of tampa bay rays like not being being not good at every position is more valuable somehow than being good at any position almost um I don't know. It would be a tough one. I, I don't think I'm with you that I don't think they will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get the long-term aspect of it, but there's a small part. What about Tapia? Double that 5.2 projected. That's probably a no. That's probably a no. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's a tough one given the role he ended up playing. It's not really a tough one if you look at the numbers, but yeah, I think it's also, it's like, what else can you do with that 5 million? Mm-hmm. And I think you can do more. Um, even if you're looking for a platoon bat outfielder, part-time outfielder guys are always available to sign for that amount in January, February. And so unfortunately for Tapia, um, who gave certainly max effort on that play and just didn't, didn't work out. Um, she ended the turf on that one. Uh, but and that's obviously not why they would consider non-tendering him. But I think that would have to be on the table for the Jays. Why was Jackie Bradley Jr. not in the game in that spot? I, you know, I think the reason why would be that they wanted to balance offense and defense. And so Tapia gives you a little bit more offense than JBJ. And JBJ would be a candidate then to come in later in the game. But I think that's the reasoning. Did it work? No. None of their decisions worked. So... With how, and I, again, it's a micro decision. And and like you said, with the coin flips, everything kind of broke the wrong way. Every 50-50 decision they made. When you look at how the bench was utilized and how the roster was constructed for the wild card, um, they gave Bradley Zimmer 100 appearances. Then he's not on the wild card roster. They made a big deal of adding Jackie Bradley Jr. And then they didn't use him in a spot that he was supposed to be used in. Um, even uh, you carry three catchers so you could pinch run for one potentially, and you don't pinch run for Alejandro Kirk in a late inning spot. You think they rethink what the bench strategy is there for next year? I know this is this is way down the checklist, but it does strike me as we spent 162 games talking about the playoff utility of specific spots on the roster, and then none of that was actually leveraged in a two-game playoff. Yeah, I mean, I think they would have brought in JBJ Obviously, they had to because of the injury. I think he was coming into that game at some point anyways, um, as long as the Jays had a lead. As for the pinch running for the catcher, debating this at the time in the press box with Shai Davidi, and I was actually pro taking Kirk out once he got to second base in mm-hmm. that spot. But Shai made a point, and I, I certainly saw the reasoning behind that afterwards, and, and even at the time, but Kirk's spot was probably going to come up again, which it did. Only if you blew the lead. Well, you never know. And, you know, at that point, I or if or if you were batting around. So either way. Yeah. But I think I think at that point you can 
get that extra at bat from Kirk, and it proved to be kind of useful, even though Todd Tickner blew the call and yeah. ended up, uh, you know, uh, Kirk I think grounded out four three. Yeah, it, it of- didn't end up mattering. It just it, it was more a question about just generally how this front office viewed those last couple roster spots versus how they were leveraged in practicality. And it's not unique to the Jays. Like that 15 inning Cleveland or Cleveland Tampa game the other day, like Cleveland used nothing off their bench. Luke Maley was hitting in super high leverage spots with a third catcher sitting on the bench. He drew a walk. Did he He did in a big spot? It didn't, it didn't seal the game, but I was very happy for him. Um, But yeah, like if, I don't know if uh, if a team is in a 15th inning of a zero zero game and you have his backup on the bench, if you need to pinch hit for him and you let a 60 WRC plus guy hit, like maybe we're overthinking the bench spots and it's just, you just get the best guys next time. Yeah. I think that's always it. And, and I'm sure the Jays will rethink their bench because you always do. And that's one thing that going into the off season, you never lock in your bench on October the 10th. You play it by ear. You let some things come to you. You see um, who's out there at the end of the off season. And even into spring, those decisions still take shape. So to me, the bench is an evolving thing. And every single off season bullpen and bench you look at. But the big question for me with the Jays is rotation. And how do you replace stripling? Um, it, because, you know, you really do need one more arm for that rotation. At least yeah, one more if things are going well yeah. with the other spots. So uh, that'll be a tough one. We're going to take a break. Ben Nicholson Smith is going to stay with us on the other side. We're going to ask some of the bigger picture questions. We, we got a little more micro than I intended, but that's tends to be what I do. So we'll zoom back out. We'll take a look at uh, some of the bigger philosophicals facing this team over the next couple months. We'll also take a look at what the Atlanta Braves have done and how that contrasts, uh, not just because it's Alex Anthopoulos and it's, uh, you know, potentially the the one that got away. Ariel Helwani was here on Saturday. You know, I'm sure he was looking at the tracking down the timeline where the Expos don't leave and Anthopoulos ends up there and he's taking his kids to an Expos playoff game instead. Uh, we'll take a look at, at what Atlanta's doing with their young core in terms of extensions, uh, what kind of lessons we might be able to draw from that. Um, but more to the point, big picture questions about John Schneider's future, about Ross Atkins' future. What does Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s future look like? That is next as Ben Nicholson-Smith stays with us on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. Pick the music so intentionally and then... Ben Nicholson Smith doesn't wear headphones, so he has no idea what's going on. He has no idea what's playing for him. No I hope idea. it sounds good. It's, it's very emo. Uh, it was a Frightened Rabbit for the first segment you were on, and, and that was Dashboard Confessional. So Nice. Got, uh, you did not respond to me with your favorite sad songs uh, quickly enough. Uh, I had already sent uh, Derek Brandeo behind the glass the, the curated <laughs> Let's Be Sad About the Blue Jays playlist <laughs> for today. Um. Let's be sad about the Blue Jays. Let's, uh, we got to be forward looking though. Ross Atkins is going to speak to Toronto media tomorrow. We'll get some things answered then. And we'll get, I'm sure a lot of non answers as every team and every sport and every GM does. Um, I wanted to ask you something though. This is my first year on the Jays beat full time. And I, I come from the Raptors side of things where generally, especially after a disappointment, it's Masai Jiri who does a, a year-end presser. And maybe it's not two days after the season ends 
and it's maybe it's not the same day as Bobby Webster, the general manager, does him, but it is a similar organizational structure to Shapiro and Atkins. Um, were you a little surprised that it wasn't Mark Shapiro who's going to kind of, you know, take the questions on this team coming up short? Uh, you know, I'll be honest, not surprised at all, and I didn't even really consider it because in recent years, Ross Atkins is always the one to do this um, this availability. Uh, Mark Shapiro is typically available um, to the media uh, at regular interval mm-hmm. intervals throughout the season. Usually the postseason one after the end of the regular season or playoffs is Atkins. So this was pretty much in line with what I would have guessed. So what it signaled to me was an answer to one of the questions I had. And this was more of a, it was something I kicked around at the deadline a little bit. And I try very much to not be reactionary to things. So, you know, I try to go back to what was I thinking on the first day of the season? What was I thinking on August 2nd? What am I thinking now? And I at least had a little bit of curiosity about how certain Ross Atkins future is with the team. Not that I think he is on the hot seat necessarily, but he did say at the Charlie Montoyo firing press conference that the, you know, they, he has to take accountability as well, that the buck stops with him, all of those things. And it has been a couple years now with this same front office group. And as you mentioned, yes, they, they won playoff games in 2016 with an entirely inherited situation. So uh, even Vlad, they inherited So is Ross Atkins potentially heading into a 2023 where his seat's a little warmer or him and Shapiro pretty much like that's a, that's a package deal and you, you can't really see a foresee a change there. Well, I think there's always the possibility for change whenever you're talking about pro sports. And so that's, that's a blanket statement that applies to any manager and any GM and most team presidents as well. Eventually Um, now specifically with Ross Atkins, you know, we're talking about a GM who built a team that won 92 games. And we're talking about a GM who's coming off 90 win seasons consecutively, uh, something that's only happened twice in Blue Jays franchise history. Uh, now, look, I think that the Blue Jays did not do enough at the trade deadline. I said that at the time. I said they needed one more arm. And I think that that, unfortunately, proved to be true for the Blue Jays over this past weekend. And I also think, like, if you're Ross Atkins, okay, so we had John Gibbons then that wasn't a pairing that was going to last. Um, Charlie Montoyo comes in. That's Atkins' guy. Then that doesn't work out. Now he goes to John Schneider as an interim. Are you really going to say to Mark Shapiro, like, I need to have a fourth manager under my GM tenure here? Or is Schneider the guy where it's like, all right, go into 2023, see what happens. And then, you know, this this sport, this industry is unpredictable. I, I would never say that Ross Atkins has security beyond 2023 but I do think he deserves credit for building a team that's won 90 games consecutive seasons which there are resources there there are other people involved but that's uh, at least something you, you know in a tough division that's something it is something and the manager point is a good one and I know that everyone is talking John Schneider and that's the biggest question because he's the interim manager that's why I, that's part of why I was very curious about Atkins first. And it was because if you were to make a change there, 
I'd imagine you want that ma- that new general manager to make the manager determination on their own. You don't want to have the next person have to inherit one. And then like you were alluding to, you only have so many bullets to change the guy below you before it, it comes up to you. So um, maybe that's a 2023 offseason conversation in terms of John Schneider. Um, you obviously can't leave the interim tag on him all year no. for 2023. Um, we saw Rob Thompson today get his interim tag removed with the Philadelphia Phillies, and he got a two-year extension. What is your read on John Schneider's immediate future? Man, it is it is a lot tougher now to get a read on that than it was three, four days ago. Because three or four days ago, I think it was very clear uh, that John Schneider had done a tremendous job with this group, and he did, of course, do a tremendous job to lead them to the playoffs after taking over midseason, but Saturday was such a disaster for this team that you know there's there's clearly it's not the same happy vibes that the Phillies have right now after spraying champagne for the second time in a week and they're on to face Atlanta now in the division series. So it's a very different vibe. That being said, this front office is not one to make impulsive moves. Mark Shapiro is a deliberate and procedural individual, whether you like that or not. And so this decision will not be made on impulse one way or the other. I think Atkins is safe. I think John Schneider will ultimately be safe as well. And I think John Schneider, from what we saw, and and people, some people may be calling for a change after the way things unfolded Saturday. But I think from what we've seen from John Schneider all season long, there are, there are reasons behind the decisions that he makes. He explains them to his to his players first and foremost. And he explains them outwardly to the media. And I don't know. I think there's a lot to like with John Schneider, despite how things unfolded Saturday. I like, I certainly like some of the things. And the even keel is a big one. The longtime relationship with some of the players. Um, I do like that he's a, a younger manager. I, I think that that can help in the modern game a little bit when, you know, there's a relational element that you see certain older managers lose uh, a couple who lost their jobs during the course of the season. uh, For example, Um, it is a, it's always hard. Right. And we talked about this a lot when Charlie Montoya was let go is like, where's the credit and the blame when you tout this collaborative approach, right. With, with coaches that stretch all the way down the third baseline on opening day. And the analytics department is contributing things like that. Like who, if you are, let's say, you were, and this isn't true, obviously, but for, to be simplistic, everything came down to the decision to pull Kevin Gosman for Tim Mesa in that spot. Okay. Who made that decision? Like, is John Schneider making that unilaterally? Does Pete Walker have a say? Is that an analytics determination of, hey, if we get to this matchup in this point, we want to make this change? Like, that that's the hardest part of the John Schneider thing for me. Yeah, I, I think in that situation, like, that's Schneider and Pete. That's, I mean, they obviously have information from the entire front office and from the training staff. Bad information. <laughs> well, I mean, we can go there too and, <laughs> and relitigate the in-game calls, but that's Schneider and Pete making that call in-game for pitching changes. Um, you know, if we're talking about maybe a pinch hitting, Casey Kendall would be probably more involved in that than obviously a Pete Walker, maybe Guillermo Martinez, the hitting coach. Um, but but Schneider's making those calls in-game. So if you, you know, ultimately he is accountable. Uh, for those decisions and I think he was accountable they obviously didn't work and the Blue Jays needed one or two of those to work and they basically swung and missed at every one of them I don't uh okay so I I understand that and I feel similarly when it comes to the coaching staff as a whole though 
Um, I guess part of the trickle down and, and I I'm working through this, having gone through the Dwayne Casey is replaced by Nick nurse, who was on his own staff. And what does that look like for the rest of the bench? Because there are people on that bench who were passed over for the same promotion, who maybe there's a dynamic that it's a little awkward to go from coworkers to a, a hierarchical relationship. Um, also just after a certain amount of time, some things maybe need to change and maybe need to shake up. Could you see any, assuming John Schneider's back, could you see a, a Pete Walker change, a Guillermo Martinez change, something like that? I mean, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. Um, and just to add one more thing on Schneider, like, mm -hmm. you know, for the managers that I've covered here in Toronto, Gibby, Charlie Montoya, and Schneider. So my sense is, and it's always almost impossible to assess other relationships from the outside as to what that what that actually is. But I just get the sense that Schneider actually has the best rapport and the best feel for his own clubhouse than Charlie did, or or even than Gibby, because Gibby, you know, he he was, you know, great in so many ways. But I think that there's a real connection there between Schneider and these players. So that's something that shouldn't be taken lightly. Now, as for Pete Walker, I think he's back. As for Guillermo Martinez, I mean, this guy led this team to the best average on base percentage and slugging percentage in the American League. As much as you know, sometimes his name will come up on the station, but it's like, what more do you want from the guy? Like the results are there. No, this is, I'm mostly asking because it's a, I know that optically it's going to not sit well with some people if everything is the same next year. And Agreed. that can be okay. Like you said, this was a very good team this year. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. could be a little better. Bo Bichette maybe puts the whole season together, et cetera, et cetera. This if you did run it back, it would once again be a low 90s win team that's in the mix for the division and a playoff spot. And, you know, things could go well or things could go poorly. But optically, and the Leafs have dealt with this, and the Raptors dealt with it pre doing the huge Kawhi trade that was a foundational sh shaking move. The feel around just running it back can be tough. And, and the Jays doing that this past year, and they didn't run it back. They they added Barrios at last year's deadline. They added Gosman, things like that. Um, but that it's a tough thing to navigate. I know this front office doesn't maybe care a ton about the PR side of things, but it is not the easiest of PR marches and Aprils if uh, if that's the route you go. I think you're right, and I think I I don't think the full coaching staff will be back as it was this year. I think that whether it's Casey Candell as bench coach. He, remember, he's interim bench coach mm -hmm. as well, so no uh, certainty of staying beyond this year. Or could, I don't know, Matt Bushman get poached to be the pitching coach of the Texas Rangers? I mean, sure. And, and do right? you protect against that by making him your own pitching coach? And maybe, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I, everyone obviously loves yeah. Pete Walker. Yeah, I mean, you never, you never know how these things unfold. Yeah. It could go in lots of different directions. So, you know, that could certainly happen. Um, but I agree. I think people would would want some sort of change. And I think the roster, the major league roster will be different. It has to be different next year and it will be different. It won't be just the same group. Yeah. Matt Bushman going to the Rangers. Ah, the dream to work with John Gray. That's <laughs> that's all I wanted for this year for Jay's Talk Plus was to get to talk about John Gray. Now he gets to go there and work with him. That'd be a, a fun one. Um, okay. So before we get to, I did want to go from that to, well, is there a Kawhi trade right is there uh is there something big that you almost can't even talk about to tee up because 
you don't expect it. If if people had expected the Raptors to make a Kawhi trade, it wouldn't have been the Kawhi trade. Um, before we do that, though, there's a question that informs that a little bit, and it's something I've kicked around. Analytically, I have a good handle on the answer. Skill-wise, I have a good handle on the answer. Results-wise, I maybe don't. And the question is this, Ben. What if Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is just a very good player and not like a generational borderline MVP level player? Well, I think, uh, put it this way. I think if you are quote unquote, just a very good player starting at the age of 21 or 22 until you're 35 or 36, then that actually ends up being a hall of famer. Yeah. You had a bad three win season. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you do that 15 times and mix in a couple like years where you actually exceed that, then you're a hall of famer. So even if that's the downside, I don't think the Jays have to be too concerned. And furthermore, with Vladdy, you know, having seen what we've seen from him in the course of the last two seasons, I think, and again, he only has three years left before he hits free agency. There is so little doubt in my mind that he is going to be a very good to elite hitter for those three seasons that, you know, you can basically bank it. To the extent that you can bank on any hitter in this game, of course, even Juan Soto slumps and, you know, Guys and have, sacrifice bunts in huge spots. Yeah, that was that was weird. Paid off. Almost I, as weird I, as the ears for Joe Musk. Yes, the the Juan Soto bunt paying off is the worst example of uh, results over process I can imagine. Hundred percent. But yeah, I think uh, like are you so for you on Vladdy? Where do you land on Vladdy? Right yeah, I, I'm with you. I think the floor is so phenomenally high, and I would love for the team to work out a long-term contract extension with him for that level of cost certainty and roster certainty and stuff like that. But even if you roll our beer to our beer for the next little bit and, and don't get an extension done, like, okay, he had a bad year this year and he was 35 to 40% better than league average at the plate and is in the conversation for the gold glove at first base, which isn't an important defensive position, but it's still pretty good. There is a small part of me that looks and says, okay, well, he was only a 140 WRC plus the second half of last year too. So we now have a season and a half to start his career where he was league average, a season and a half most recently where he was, you know, about 40% better than league average. And then we have that one half season where he was the MVP. Yeah. That makes it seem like that half season is more of the outlier, but also again, like he just had his floor season and he was a three win guy. I mean, four wins on baseball reference. Yeah. So, yeah. And and again, like, you know, if he's quote unquote, just a 135, 140 WRC plus guy, that's been Paul Goldschmidt most of his career. You know, again, Goldschmidt's a first baseman. He's not necessarily, um, you know, he's, he's a slugger. He's there for his bat. He has one year like this year where he's probably going to win the MVP. Um, but I just, I think there are other places on this roster to worry more about than Vladdy. And I agree mm-hmm. with you. I think if there's a way for the Jays to lock him up, they should absolutely do that, but they've missed their chance to do it affordably. Like it's obviously it would cost a ton of money right now. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a tough one. Although I don't know, there's a small like cynical part of me. That's like, well, maybe you negotiate coming off of a worse year. Maybe there's even, a little flexibility then. there, but yeah, the, even then. when you set an historic arbitration number for your first year, it's you're not going to stop setting historic arbitration numbers future years. So. Yeah, exactly. So say his arb years are 15, 20, 25. Yeah. So that's 60 million for his arb years tack on the free agent years. Like it's not going to be, it's not going to be a bargain. No, it's certainly not. Um, and he's still only 23. 
there's a lot, and I we I talked about this with Julia Kreutz earlier too. Is like in terms of like analytically trying to project them forward. Not only do you have the element of well, you were an MVP for half a season, you own that still. Like you, that is within your capability. But also, like when your bad season still has you at the very top of the league in like every stack cast metric, you're in okay shape to to build from. Now, don't get me wrong; he had a, a pretty disappointing stretch run here and a, a poor you know, over his four career playoff games now, he has not been particularly good. I believe he's two for 15 with a walk. Um, there is a lot more suggesting Vlad will still be very good than not. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, he's an exciting player to watch, like you say, hitting those lasers. Um, again, going back to the missed opportunities here, he missed a chance and the Jays missed a chance to give Vladdy the chance to have that first iconic playoff moment. And he stepped up in game one with a couple runners on and the yeah, three, nothing that was, game. The, that was the spot could have been it. Right. And so you're not going to do that on command. It's not automatic, but at some point Vlad jr. Of course has that potential and it's, it would be good for him. It would be good for the Jays, obviously. Um, and it just hasn't happened yet for Vladdy. So I'm going to, may I JD Bunkus you, I don't know exactly what you mean by that uh, verb, but uh, I will permit you to proceed. So I'm I'm borrowing a, a gimmick that JD does. It's usually at the start of the season. It's usually after, you know, I, I'm sure he uses it with other people, but he's hit me with it for Maasai pressers at the start of basically every season. It's that you have a, a truth serum that you can give to Ross Atkins tomorrow, and he has to answer truthfully. What is your one question? Uh which players from this core are you most willing to trade? It's a good one. Yeah. Do you think the answer is one of the catchers? Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe it's an outfielder. Could be Lourdes. Could be uh, an infielder. Like, we don't... Uh, who knows? Could be anything. Could be a pitcher. Yeah. Could <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I just You were going through all the all the positions. I'm yeah. going to finish it for you. I mean... Uh, I don't, that's, that's part of the reason I would ask the question is I don't, I don't yeah. know exactly, but I think that would be one. Cause you know, you could burn that if you had one question, right? You could burn that on, will John Schneider be back as manager, but someone else will ask that. We'll find and that. You're going to find out. Yeah, yeah. That answer will reveal itself, but you know, what core player on this team would you be most willing to trade? That's something that we might never find out. Yeah. That's a tough one. Cause it takes two. It does take two. And it's one that even if you wanted to do it, you would never give the answer until you're ready to click yes on the the old trade proposal. Yeah, I yeah, I mean uh, Ross, if you're listening, just feel free to let me know. Yeah, uh, send me a note. There's and, no way uh, he's listening. Yeah, um, did <laughs> and, you win your fantasy league? By the way, we've only got two minutes left, so I can be nonsense now. Did you end up winning? I did, and I also congratulations. I, I want to shout out my league um, because. Uh, yeah, it's a great league. I've been, um, I've lost it like 12 years in a row. I've been destroyed by this competition. It's a very competitive league. I've been destroyed over and over and finally snuck in a victory. There you go. My friend Dan was very, very close. Um, what's the offseason look like for you? Got anything big planned for us? Well, um, or, or for yourself? Certainly a lot of, uh, a lot of coverage on these Toronto Blue Jays. That'll keep, uh, keep me busy. I guess I won't be hopping on Jay's Talk Plus anymore, but it's been great. No, rest you, in peace. You did a great job with the show this year. It's been a Thanks, lot of fun man. joining you. Um, a great addition to the 590 Airwaves. Yeah, uh, we'll see We'll see what's next. I really appreciate you taking the time out today and uh, all the time. I bugged you a lot for it this year, so thanks, man. Anytime. Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet, of At The Letters. Believe sometime in the next little bit, At The Letters will have 
more for you tomorrow. Tomorrow. Oh, see, I was thinking ahead to your prop bet one, but no, you're you've got the post Ross Atkins tomorrow. It's already recorded. It's oh. already in the books. It's people are, are Christian Ryan and, and Nick Andrade are editing it as we speak. Unbelievable. What a what an inside scoop. Um, we're gonna take a break. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk to Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. We'll ask her some of the same questions Ben and I uh, were just kicking around. Uh, we got Michael Bauman of Fangraphs a little later as well. Try to learn some lessons from his Philadelphia Phillies as it pertains to John Schneider's future. Learn some lessons from the Atlanta Braves that those Phillies are going up against as it pertains to pooling your risk when it comes to signing all your young guys to affordable extensions. They won't all pay off. But if a couple of them do, the Braves are going to be in pretty good shape for a while. Uh, yeah. Is it tough to be talking about the other playoff series right now? Yeah. It sucks. Uh, it's nice that there's a built-in off day with no basketball to, or no baseball tonight. No basketball tonight either. Uh, you can instead just watch uh, Monday Night Raw on Sportsnet and whatever uh, Sportsnet now. All your Sportsnet channels. Uh, no baseball tonight. But we'll talk to Caitlin McGrath and Michael Bauman Next, as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sports at 590 The Fan. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, that extremely divorced guy sounding music means it's uh, it's time for Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. Not a divorced guy, but a fan of the National going through it yesterday. Uh, Caitlin. You doing a little better today? Yes, of course. <laughs> uh, I got a better night's sleep <laughs> yesterday than the night before, which was like just crazy. Yeah, not great. Um, what will I want to look ahead to potentially more positive things? But uh, as we close out the season, what'll stand out to you the most, or what'll stick with you the most from this past weekend and the Jays being swept two zero? Uh, I mean, I think just the collapse honestly like I, I think it was it quite honestly was probably like the worst game they played in the sense of uh the stakes that were there um and just how badly it all crumbled and and some of it was just really bad luck uh especially on that bloop double but I can't even really recall another game this year where they suffered such a collapse which is kind of that's what was funny about it is that well not funny I don't even know the word but it's like last year the bullpen was susceptible to those kinds of collapses and it feels like a little bit this year they still kind of carried that reputation even though for the most part they actually were fine uh sure they weren't like a shutdown bullpen like other teams were but they usually were reliable enough to be able to hold like a seven run lead and so just to see the team completely crumble in that high stakes of a spot was honestly kind of unbelievable because I thought the Blue Jays were a pretty good front-running team all season long. And I just was, it was kind of unbelievable to see it happen, honestly. Like, it really was, like, their worst hour, two hours of the season, which followed a really good start to that game, which I think just made it kind of all the more stunning. Yeah, you have to go back basically to 1985, I think, which is before either of us were born uh, for the last time the Jays had a, a game that bad or, or a playoff moment that bad in a big spot. Uh, not great, Caitlin. You mentioned the Jays being so good front running. And 
that feeling of disbelief you're still kind of left with. Um, did you feel that in the clubhouse after the game as well? And I think particularly about Jordan Romano, who's usually so unfazed by things. And I don't think he gave up those runs because he was phased or shaken or anything like that. But he is probably the guy who I'm most curious to hear about what his demeanor was like after that game. Yeah, it's interesting because I, because of the way the postseason works, um, you have to go to the press conference room first. Um, and so by the time I was in the clubhouse, uh, quite a bit of time had, had honestly passed after the game ended. And so I think if I had gone into the clubhouse immediately uh, after, when it opened like 10 minutes after, I think I would have got a more accurate reading of everyone's demeanor. Um, but by the time I got in there, like after it was after Schneider and Kevin Gosman talked, and that was after a lengthy bit of time after the game. So anyway, long story that I'm getting to here, like probably was in there like 40 minutes after the game ended, if not more. Um, and everyone was still very clearly kind of almost like numb or shocked or kind of still in a, a, a phase where they were accepting that it was all over. I think that it's, it ended in such a flash or such a, like a blink of an eye that I feel like they were still kind of processing it. And it's a strange time because you're, you're processing this epic loss and you're also sort of trying to say bye to people and wish people well. And so there's like kind of this mix of, you know, a guy like Jackie Bradley Jr. who is trying to get his Jersey signed because, you know, he's a free agent and he's wanting to say goodbye to some of these teammates and, and, and so people are sort of like hugging him and saying it was great to play with you. And so there's a bit of mix of like, you know, guys wishing each other well, but also guys still kind of stunned that it's over. And so in terms of Jordan, I mean, he looked upset. Um, I saw him and, and Tim Mesa and they both looked not happy, um, but they were both, you know, polite. And I did, you know, say goodbye to them and thank them for their time um, talking to me all throughout the year. But yeah, it was, I would say everybody was just in this kind of weird state of like almost still processing what had just happened. Well, there are five stages of grief for a reason and you're not expected to go through all of them at once. And there's a thing Caitlin called anticipatory grief where sometimes that grieving process speeds up because you have a sense that something's coming and you can start um, processing it early uh, that is not the case when you are up eight to one in an elimination game. You have absolutely no time to process it because your brain is already switched to processing a potential game three. I think um, now there's a lot that follows from this. And I, I thought your, your write-up of game two at the athletic was excellent. But the piece that I want to talk to you most about is your follow-up piece, which is called, will the blue Jays keep their manager and nine other questions for this off season. You mentioned Mesa and Romano the bullpen management is something that's a little easier for us to grab onto when it comes to looking at a manager versus some of the more macro level stuff or personality based stuff. But you have the benefit of both. You have the benefit of seeing how the game played out and, and how John Schneider's decisions played out and how that clubhouse responded to him since he took over. And, and even this weekend, um, you have that as your number one question on the 10 questions for the Jays offseason, where do you lean on it? Is John Schneider back this year or next year, rather? Um, I would still lean yes. Um, the game two dynamics certainly um, probably 
I think it probably changed the opinion of fans more than the front office. I mean, knowing this Blue Jays front office, they are not the type to make this kind of rash decision based on a couple decisions in a game and and in which those decisions, if, you know, the player had executed, they look fine. I mean, Mesa does get a lot of ground balls a lot. And so if there was like, if the plan was to try and him to execute a ground ball and then he didn't get it done. And then, you know, it just changes the complexion and it wasn't Schneider's fault that he called on Anthony Bass and he didn't record a single out. And then you have to throw Jordan Romano in this really stressful situation. And so, yeah, there's a mix of decision-making that I think could have gone another way. And and I do think, uh, you know, talking to some people just afterwards, like colleagues and stuff, us discussing it, it's like, yeah, maybe also the biggest one was not substituting Jackie Bradley Jr. Mm-hmm. there in the eighth. Like, why did you Why still have Springer? You were up by, I think, four runs at that point still. Yeah, he was going to get the first at bat, I think, in the eighth. But, like, he was so banged up. Why not just sit him and get him ready for game three at that point, right? So, anyway, um, I do think that the players, though, I guess one thing I should mention is that, and it goes back into the last question you asked me, is that it did, I did get the sense that whatever John Schneider said to them after the game did make them feel a lot better. Um, and I think that probably played into why some of my perception of the moment was, um, you know, guys were upset, guys weren't happy, but it, all, it overall wasn't like complete devastation. And I think that that was probably because whatever John Schneider said to them, um, they, they took away from it and were left feeling at least proud of what they had accomplished. And I think that was kind of the lasting message. And, and it was like, grow from this, get better from this. We're all going to do this again next year kind of thing. So I think because of that, um, he has been such a great leader for them. I think a lot of the players have responded to them, to him, I should say. And I think the thing that they like about him is that he's um, pretty good at reading players and situations and knowing when to um, push certain buttons, knowing when a guy needs to be comforted and knowing when a guy needs to be, you know, talk to sternly or yelled at or whatever it is, right? Like these are grown men. So um, they need different things at different times. So I would still lean towards him coming back. Um, But I do think it's worth a a discussion from the front office to think, do we need somebody with more experience? Um, And maybe that comes in a bench coach role as well. Casey Kendall was in an interim role. Um, will he come back or will they look for somebody that more has more experience and maybe can be that type of guy for them? So let's say John Schneider's back. And if there are changes to the coaching staff, they're, you know, they're not at the level of Pete Walker, Guillermo Martinez. Um, they're, they're kind of less visible ones. A lot of the core is still intact for this team. The the big free agents being, or the only free agents rather being Ross Stripling, David Phelps and Jackie Bradley Jr. Uh, not the, uh, the hugest list of names, although Stripling's a a really big one. And we'll get some clarity on this tomorrow, maybe from Ross Atkins, but let's assume Schneider's back. What is this team doing or what do they need to do to come back better next year, Caitlin? Yeah, I mean, I have been reading some things or thinking about some things, and it is interesting. Um like, okay, so, I mean, I was born in 1990, so I don't really know the 92, 93, 
journey as deeply as fans who are alive at that point or or old enough to sort of know them and remember them. And I know some history. Um, and it, it, it's just this loss kind of made me think back to that 92 team. And I, and I thought about them because obviously they came this year uh, and they had that um, – anniversary celebration uh whenever it was august i guess and i just listening to a lot of those players we had like scrums with like joe carter and pat borders and just like listening to them about kind of like the, their journey they went through as blue jays and things that had to happen for them to get to a certain place and so like you earlier referenced the 85 collapse was it 85 or 87 collapse 87 collapse sorry and um and then there, in, the, in the journey of that team, there was also those massive trades, right? The Joe Carter and Alomar trade. Those big things um, happen. And so I do wonder, like, it's not to say that, you know, all teams and all franchises always have to follow the same narrative as if, like, okay, now these Blue Jays need to have their massive Joe Carter-type trade, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm not saying that that has to mirror it, but it did make me think, like, sometimes um, – sometimes teams do need that. And I mean, you would know from covering the Raptors as long as you did like the Kawhi Leonard trade and how that shaped that team. And obviously you remove, you remove somebody who uh, in, in DeMar DeRozan, who was a huge influence um, who had grown up with the Raptors, but at the end of the day, you're trying to win a championship and he no longer fit uh, with what they were trying to do. So I do wonder if this is the off season where, a massive trade does happen. Um, how massive? I don't know. I don't think that we're talking about like a Vlad or Bo move, but maybe it is a Teoscar Hernandez or a Lourdes Gurriel. Those are the two kind of names that jump out. Maybe or a Kirk or a Jansen, or maybe it's a Gabriel Moreno. You're packaging him for something significant. So I do wonder if this is the off season where we see the big trade because the team has spent a lot of money on free agents and they've gone out and they've done that. And I just wonder if they have to get a bit more creative because it's not like there's endless money coming from Rogers. Well, I'll tell you, Caitlin, uh, Chris Black and I, during game two, the the more fun parts of game two, we're just badgering Mike Petriello of MLB.com with Shohei Otani trade hypotheticals. <laughs> so uh, big trade is uh, that's good radio if they get in on something like that. But uh, no, I'm with you. I, I do wonder if there's, you know, the irony in uh, a move you don't see coming is that it's hard to talk about in preview because if you see it coming, it's not a move you don't see coming. Um, but there are there are obviously um, those options. Now, in terms of where you'd address, now, you have to get better, period. You don't, you know, it's not like you go out and say, oh, if we can't improve our starting pitching, we don't improve at all. You, you take the deals that come to you. However, looking at where this team's at, I, I would say probably starting pitching is the biggest question mark right now, um, Kikuchi and Barrios could conceivably bounce back. But right now your rotation is Manoa, Gosman, if Kikuchi and Barrios bounce back and if Mitch White is something. That is not uh, a super deep rotation. Are you in alignment with me on that? that? That starting pitching is kind of where you're most curious about how this team tries to improve? Yeah, I think that's probably a good read on the situation and there's no one exactly knocking on the door at triple a right like ricky tiedemann is probably maybe he takes a huge step next year again but i don't know that you're penciling him in even for a late 
major league edition. Um, and so, and then there's like, what was the huge question mark of Nate Pearson, which I think at this point uh, we're probably talking about him as a reliever, uh, not maybe because he couldn't make it as a starter. It's just like, how do you get him to helping you as fast as possible? It's probably a reliever at this point. Um, and so I think that there has to be an addition on the starting pitching side. And again, it might have to be via trade because I don't think um, the starting pitching market is exactly deep this winter. Um, admittedly, I'm not at that point of my off-season writing yet where I'm going and looking mm. at the options. Um, but, like, I know just, like, Ross Stripling um, is probably going to be not headlining that, but certainly one of the better options, I think. So that maybe – and this is no um, offense to Ross Stripling. It's just it tells you where that market is. It's, it's not, like, a huge free agent class for starting pitchers. So – I wonder if it has to be via trade. I don't know. Is it Shohei Otani? That would certainly help them in multiple ways. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think you got you. Re, if you're the Blue Jays, you are really, really hoping that one of, if not both, of Yusei Kikuchi and Barrios can rebound. I mean, the money would be on Barrios being able to do it, just because even as up and down as he was, he was more he was more good than bad. It was just when he was bad, he was really bad. Um, and you just kind of hope that he can get back to the guy that he once was, and he's still pretty young, and there's all these things um, probably in his favor in that regard. And then Kikuchi, you just never know. Um, you know, I, I think that if I was to put money on it, I would go with Rios finding a way. But, yeah, if you're the Blue Jays, you gotta you got to add, but you also really have to hope and pray, and you have to have, like, them on – FaceTime with Pete Walker all through the offseason or something to try and figure out how they can get better. Caitlin, they're allowed to just like travel and see each other. They don't, <laughs> they don't have to be on FaceTime. Um, so that's the starting side. And I agree. I think Barrios and Kikuchi, you have basically like, you don't have the resources to not bet on at least one of those guys bouncing back. You don't really have a choice. You're not going to adjust three spots in the rotation. I, I still think, you know, you could figure some stuff out with Mitch White. Um, ideally, though, Mitch White's probably your your bullpen long man. Um, when you look at the bullpen as a whole, I, I think there's a really interesting philosophical to explore with the Jays over the last couple of years where this front office very clearly does not believe in investing dollars in a bullpen, at least prior to the season. And I'd imagine part of that is if you have a limited budget, then you don't want to use your money on the least predictable part of a roster, which is your bullpen. And they've shown two years in a row. Now they're comfortable making bullpen additions on the fly for, you know, not the top tier of prospects, but the next tier down. David Phelps is the only name they're losing from their bullpen. So excuse the list here, but they would enter next year with Romano, Garcia, Bass, Meza, Simber, Pop, Richards, uh, Pearson, if he's in the mix, Merriweather, if he's in the mix, a couple minor leaguers uh, moving up, Matt Gage. They have some depth there, but it's still going to be a group that is maybe lacking at the very back end and the very you know high upside swing and miss pieces beyond Romano do you think the last couple years would have nudged this front office toward you know what it's not the worst thing in the world to spend on the back end of your bullpen and if it blows up on you it blows up on you it's a risk every contending team has to take um where do you see them landing on bullpen investment for next year sorry that was a very long question Uh, it's a, a good question, though. And I mean, like even at the deadline, um, I mean, the deadline was 
uh, strange deadline and that I think a lot of the relievers that we thought would move didn't end up moving. And the Blue Jays obviously got Bass and Pop, and that helped them a little bit. Um, but it wasn't necessarily the, like, best relievers or, you know, the, the hardest-throwing guys that they could have gotten. Um, and it's interesting because along with the philosophy of not spending a huge amount on relievers, I think that this front office seems to want to build teams around more, like, relievers that can just throw strikes. And um, it's like they don't necessarily want to invest in a guy that throws, uh, you know, a 100 with, like, a 90 slider but doesn't know where it's going half of the time. And other teams do invest in that. And I think that's the thing is that we saw a lot of times coming out of other teams' bullpens, like these guys, talk about the Mariners, like they had a few guys that just threw so hard. And, yeah, sometimes those guys don't have a ton of control, but I don't know if you can throw 90-something slider off the plate and get guys to chase a lot. Maybe that's okay. Like, you know, so I, I wonder if there's going to be a rethinking of that kind of philosophy as well. Um, they survived with their bullpen a lot because their infield defense um, or their defense in general was better this year. A lot of the reason why was because of Matt Chapman. Um, so I do wonder if along with spending more, they will maybe have to look at like a dif- just a different type of reliever, um, mm-hmm. you know, that as well. And, you know, the Yumi Garcia deal still kind of worked out for them. I mean, I can't exactly remember what he was signed for, but um, it was a little more than that you thought they would typically spend. And I think he was pretty reliable. He had a few blips here and there, but for the most part, he was their go-to eighth inning guy. And so, I mean, that can show you that you can, if you, as long as you do your due diligence and you find a reliever that has that reliability and stuff, that those deals can work out for you. But yeah, I, I do think that there's going to be some, a lot of thinking in terms of philosophy and mindset when it comes to signing relievers, because I, I think that maybe other teams have, got ahead of the Blue Jays a little bit in terms of how they look at the bullpen and how they build their bullpen. Yeah, and it's something we've heard the Blue Jays talk a little bit about in terms of, well, changing developmentally what you're doing with relievers, but that's something that's happening down at, you know, Dunedin and Vancouver right now. That's a Mm -hmm. little bit away from uh, impacting the Major League roster. Uh, Caitlin, December 4th is when the winter meetings begin. Uh, Tomorrow is Ross Atkins' end-of-season availability. What is your near-term future look like are you getting a break in or what not yet uh probably in like a couple weeks or something i don't even know uh i haven't thought about it but maybe like towards the end of october i could probably squeeze away a few weeks and then november i'll probably be back at it because we have gm meetings coming up um in the beginning of november basically when the world series ends i'll probably have to be really back at it so Hopefully, like, during the World Series week when teams are kind of instructed not to do anything, uh, as long as you're not covering a team in the World Series, you can usually sneak away at that point. So that's probably when I'll aim to get some time off. Well, Caitlin, you deserve it. Um, We really appreciate all the great work this year at The Athletic and all the time you've taken out to join us on Jay's Talk Plus. Uh, Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks. Um, And I I guess your show's off in the offseason, or what's what's your scheduling plan? That is a good question. Uh, no, uh, Jay's Talk Plus is uh, we're until five today and then we're two to three the rest of the week. And then that's it for Jay's Talk Plus for, for this season. Oh, OK, well, it was great to be on the air with you so much this year. And uh, hopefully the next time we talk, we have a lot to talk about with offseason moves and everything. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. Uh, thanks so much.
Thank you. It's Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. We're going to talk to Michael Bauman uh, after the break. Michael Bauman of Fangraphs. Take a bit of a national look at what's happened with the Jays. And I do want to, I know that at this stage, there probably isn't a huge appetite for Jays fans looking at the other teams still in the playoffs. But I do think there are a couple interesting ones to look at in terms of comparative roster building, what other teams uh, have done in similar spots in dissimilar spots. Um, I don't know. I just think it's uh it's always a helpful thing when a team makes it further than you to take a look at why some of that is, well, they play in the AL central. You can't control that. Some of that might be controllable. And you want to find out what those things are, what those elements are and control them as best you can. Um, this is uh, this is going to be a pretty pivotal offseason for the Blue Jays in a lot of ways. Uh, determining, are you keeping three catchers for the future? Are Jose Barrios and Yusei Kikuchi bouncing back? Or are they, you know, sunk costs in terms of your budget and how you build your rotation? Do you believe that you can have a top-end bullpen, a, a playoff-level bullpen, without elite swing and miss stuff? A lot of philosophicals, and then there are a lot of just Hard questions, period. Ross Stripling qualifying offer or trying to work out a deal with him before it gets to that point. A couple potential non-tender candidates. What does the budget look like? Is it going up to $200 million? you planning on uh, getting a little back at the end of Hyunjin Ryu's deal? Um, maybe that informs the 2024 budget more than 2023. A lot of stuff to sort through. So let's take a break and sort through more of it with Michael Bauman of Fangraphs next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. If you missed it earlier, uh, we are with you two to five today. Obviously, we're almost done right now. Jay's Talk Plus will move to two to three the rest of the week. Before we close out tomorrow, right around the time we start, Ross Atkins will conduct his end of season media availability. We'll be bringing that to you live and then reacting off of it once that's wrapped up. So if you want to hear uh, the Toronto Blue Jays general manager, go through some of the questions we've been going through today with Julia and Ben and Caitlin. You can do that tomorrow. Uh, We'll see how that goes. We're going to talk to Michael Bauman here in a minute of Fangraphs. Um, if you are more baseball fan than Blue Jays fan or just a very well-adjusted Blue Jays fan and you can find yourself looking forward to the rest of the playoffs, I think they're going to be a lot of fun. And I say this as not to dig the knife in, but I say it as someone who's a big baseball fan. Um, Philly, Atlanta, Seattle, Houston, Cleveland, New York, San Diego, L.A., That is an awesome slate of playoff series. It would be way more fun if the Toronto Blue Jays were in it. We'd also get the fun of Blue Jays fans would be complaining about the 3.30 start times uh, for games one and three down in Houston, but what are you going to do? It shapes up to be a really fun playoff. Um, It is interesting also to think about, well, what if the expanded playoff format didn't exist this year. The Jays would have been playing Houston right away. 
instead of being in a wild card series. Uh, Seattle and Tampa Bay obviously would not have made the playoffs. And the Mets would be in there. And if you're upset as a Jays fan, uh, imagine winning 101 games, tying for the division lead, and then being out on opening weekend. Um, we have a couple texts in the text line before we get to Mike Bauman. Uh, there were a few today. Peter in Toronto asks if the Jays' home field advantage actually works against them. Uh, maybe they were a little too amped up or felt too much pressure. I, I still think you want it, Peter. You just have to manage it better. And maybe that's an experience thing. Maybe that's a random blip thing. But there are no good pieces of evidence to say you'd rather be on the road. Having said that, road teams did much better uh, over the course of this weekend than home teams did. This was our first time ever having precedent for how valuable is home field in a three-game series where all three games are at one spot. Uh, the answer, not very. And then also, oh, only one of these series went to three games. So a uh, little hard to go through that as well. Um, Chris in Oshawa asked if Pete Walker would have had a, a say in taking Gosman out in addition to John Schneider. Um, yeah, Ben Nicholson-Smith kind of filled us in on that a, a little earlier that um, – they would have made that decision, you know, collaboratively, not necessarily unilaterally. Um, it's uh, that's the hard part about this front office or this coaching staff and, and most coaching staffs in 2022 is that it's hard to know who, who the buck stops with, who is making the final decision. And that's why, you know, Ross Atkins comments tomorrow about John Schneider will be partially telling, but also not because, you know, in good times, we hear that it's a collaborative thing and a lot of coaches contribute and the front office and analytics staffs contribute. And then in bad times, um, it's, well, John Schneider put Tim Mays in for Kevin Gosman. So it's hard to work through uh, some of that. Someone said trade Bichette now. Uh, probably don't make a trade in October. There are uh, at least eight teams who wouldn't be available to trade right now. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, obviously not the, uh, not the point there. Ricky from Thornhill asks if I think the Jays were cursed by the return of the fiend on Saturday night. Um, no, I don't. First of all, the fiend, I don't know that we know for sure. He returned Bray Wyatt returned. If he's on raw tonight, which you can watch on the Sportsnet series of channels, by the way, we will then do uh, Bray talk plus tomorrow. Friday is going to be Jags talk plus as my Jacksonville Jaguars head into uh, a big game against the Indianapolis Colts on Sunday. You can keep your text coming into 590, 590. Make sure you include your name and location. Uh, we've got about 20 minutes left with you here. Um, someone asked uh, the probability that the Jays blow that one. It was over 99%. A lot of those probability sites don't go down to extra decimal points, but I would imagine that there were extra decimal points there where it was greater than 99%. Um, SJ from North York says that his bare minimum or her bare minimum expectation was winning playoff games, not just getting there. That's a reasonable take to have. Um, you know, if you haven't made the playoffs as a core before, I think the minimum expectation is uh, make the playoffs. And I know that's a very small leap, but that's why we're using the term bare minimum. 
I want to take a look at some potential roster scenarios for this offseason, just briefly for the Blue Jays. The bigger things are going to be like the things that matter more for what is the long-term outlook of this team look like are, you know, do Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Boba and or Alec Manoa get long-term deals? You can look at the Atlanta Braves, and we will if we if we get Mike Bauman on the line um, and how that compares. But you can also look at a scenario where the Jays don't do that stuff because it's not necessary yet. Those guys aren't free agents. You would like to get something done for cost certainty and to help the players feel comfortable and everyone to know what the core looks like moving forward. If they don't, though, the Jays have nine players under guaranteed contract for next year who are set to make about $117.5 million. They also have a team option on Anthony Bass for $3 million that it seems very likely they would pick up. Um, David Phelps, Ross Stripling, Jackie Bradley Jr., the only true free agents. You then have 13 players who are arbitration eligible. MLB Trade Rumors put out their arbitration estimates today. And those are generally pretty accurate. Now, a lot of the cases don't actually go to arbitration, but we can look at things like where do the team and player settle? What do the team and player ask for? Um, and and use those as guides. And through those guides, MLB Trade Rumors has been pretty accurate historically. They have the 13 arbitration-eligible Blue Jays making $62 million together. That is probably higher than what the Jays will actually end up paying. First of all, because if you do sign some of your young players to extensions, you'll probably get their earlier years uh, a little cheaper if you need to, if you determine within the budget that you need to do that. Um, you also have some non-tender candidates. Rymel Tapia projects to make a little over $5 million. That's an iffy one. Trent Thornton at 1.1 is inexpensive, but you're going to have a bit of a 40-man crunch. Um, you have a lot of players already um, going to the 40 man roster. And you have a number that you might want to project protect next year for rule five purposes. Um, Bradley Zimmer at 1.3 million. It seems like you could get Bradley Zimmer's production for the minimum off someone called up from AAA or given a minor league deal or something like that. The tougher ones to me, and I include Ryan Maltapia in the likely to be non-tendered group at 5 million and change for what projects as a fourth outfielder. It's not that that's not okay value. It's just that you could use that money elsewhere. The The more interesting ones to me are Trevor Richards and Kevin Biggio, who have their uses and aren't too expensive, but might be superfluous. And if you start pushing up against the budget, then you have to make some tough decisions. Uh, not a tough decision. Having Michael Bauman of Fangraphs on the show. Michael, how are you, buddy? I'm doing good. How are you guys? Uh, I'm good. Apart from the obvious, I guess. I, well, I mean, I'm I'm good. Uh, th- I would prefer to be setting up the Astros Jays series right now, um, but it's sunny mm-hmm. here. I get to talk about baseball for a living. I get to interact with our terrific listeners uh, on the air and in the text line on Twitter. So, and I get to talk to you about our plan to expand Major League Baseball to like 128 teams. 
Yeah, there you go. That's a great attitude, a very healthy approach. Yeah. Uh, so what are we doing? How, you you wrote at Fangraphs, the playoffs aren't too big. The league is way too small. I know that we're joking about it a little bit, but give me the, the elevator pitch here. And how many Canadian teams are we doing in this hypothetical uh, expansion of the playoffs, of the, of the league, rather? I, as many as it takes to get Canada on board. So the, the thesis is... Uh, in the early, like the golden age of baseball, so to speak, between the two, what we consider the major leagues and various startups, the Negro leagues and some minor leagues like the International League and the Pacific Coast League that were regional leagues that played a basically a major league quality, we had a baseball team for every million or two Americans. And now we're up to a baseball team for about every million and a half Americans. So 2019 is the U.S., 330 odd Um uh, American citizens, it's just not enough. And I think the the way to expand baseball to make it healthier is to have a large, diverse ecosystem of teams that serve people at the community level. So you're not, you know, following the twins from North Dakota or from Montana or whatever. Um, and I, you know, put baseball in the in mid-sized cities again where people can really rally around it. But like. You know, when Major League Sports comes to a city for the first time, like we saw in Las Vegas recently, um, or Nashville, like it, people, you know, people latch onto it. I think it's been past time. It's been 25 years since uh, baseball expanded, or Major League Baseball expanded. I think they're going to get to adding another couple teams in the next few years. But I think let's go nuts. And, uh, you know, a couple years ago, I went to St. Pete for a story on the Rays and their situation with, you know, running the rock bottom budget and the trop and, I fell in love with it, to be completely honest. There's a like St. Pete is a small, uh, you know, very noble, very intimate community uh, with this weird baseball stadium. And, you know, having been in Philadelphia, Houston, Chicago, you know, these are big cities with very homogenized sports cultures. And you don't get something like weird and beautiful <laughs> if the only way you can have a stadium is or is the only way you can have a team is if you have a 40,000 seat stadium that serves millions and millions of people. So, you know, I, let's bring baseball back to the masses is my pitch. So yeah, let's put another team in Toronto. Let's go back to Montreal, uh, you know, Vancouver. Yeah. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know if you can play in Edmonton, but like, you know, let's, let's go nuts. That's, you know, so that's my elevator pitch. You could Edmonton could only play if they did what the Toronto, um, rugby team that was in the the english league for a while did which is like bunch all your home games together so you start the season on the road constantly play all your home games at once and then bunch all your away games uh at the end of the season i i don't know that major league baseball would like a, a team playing 81 consecutive home games but we might hey, look if it gets us more canadian teams i think montreal and vancouver absolutely <laughs> Um, yeah. I'm in I mean, what you describe is, is what like the big 10 does for baseball, you know, university yeah. of Minnesota, things like that. So it's, it's doable. Um, all right. So let's talk about the playoff field that actually exists. Um, yeah. I, sadly that one is left for out of the park baseball for the time being, but, um, your Phillies are moving on to the NLDS against the Braves. Uh, before we get into some of the specifics there, how excited are you for what a Phillies playoff crowd has been in the past and could be these next couple of weeks? Yeah, it, I mean, it's been 11 years since it's been up here. And I can tell you the city, once when the Phillies are good, it, you know, that once every 30 years 
thing when it happens. So everybody really gets on board. I think the, the manner in which they won those two games in St. Louis uh, has people feeling really optimistic. And the fact that it's against the Braves, uh, you know, one of the big rivals, I think makes it all the more special. So, you know, it, it's, it's, this is a, a fun market to, you know, in many respects, it's, you know, from what I know about Toronto and the Blue Jays, it's very similar that, mm-hmm. you know, baseball is not the number one sport, but when the team is good, the people really, really go nuts. So I'm, you know, I'll be there this weekend for, uh, for Friday and hopefully Saturday uh, if necessary, but I expect nothing less than just an absolutely insane atmosphere. I want to take uh, a couple things from that Phillies brave series and, contrast them or compare them to what's going on in Toronto and what's going to happen in Toronto in the next little bit. And the most obvious one is Rob Thompson getting the interim tag moved from his man removed from his manager title. Uh, the Sarnia born manager now uh, with the Phillies longer term, the Phillies and Jays kind of had parallel seasons as it came to performance before and after a managerial change. Um, what is it that's made Rob Thompson a success in that role? And do you see similarities with how John Schneider handled the Jays after the change? Yeah, they're, they're very, very similar stories, actually, right down to uh, John Schneider, of course, being from Princeton, New Jersey, which is mm-hmm. right around the corner from, uh, from Philadelphia. But so both of them, so Rob Tom, John Schneider obviously came up through the minor leagues. Um, you know, the first time I met him, uh, was I was doing a feature story on Bo Bichette, and I talked to John Schneider about managing him in, uh, in I think it was A-ball. Um, but he's a guy who really connects with the, the young players, and Rob Thompson very much the same. He wasn't he didn't come through the minor league system, but uh, when Joe Girardi was a manager down here, it there was a very uptight atmosphere and uh, sort of a, a cold clubhouse. And that, you know the veterans on the team, you know Reese Hoskins and Bryce Harper's is have gone out of their way to try to, to reach out to the young, you know, younger players, knowing that, you know, they're going to rely on them uh, for, to, to be productive, to fill in some of those holes. And I think the player just had done a good job at Girardi put, you know, put together an atmosphere where I think people were afraid to make mistakes. And I think so much of what Thompson's done, is just chill things out, you know, letting the young players know, Hey, we believe in you, that it's okay to go out there and make a mistake. Um, and eliminating that fear of failure, you see what that's done for guys like like Alec Bohm, who had an incredible series uh, against St. Louis. Bryson Stott, who's come up with one big uh, clutch hit after another, even though the overall numbers uh, don't uh, don't look so good. And you know that's been the diff. Matt Veerling, Brandon Marsh, like they they talk about the Phillies daycare, uh, <laughs> sort of this collection of of Bowman Scott and a bunch of the bench players who are all, you know, sort of mid twenties age. And I think they've, once they really started going, it generated a lot of positive energy. And, uh, and I think that's where like a lot of the, the emotional lift and the momentum for this team has, has really come from. So, you know, I find it hard to, to find fault with the job he's done. You know, this was some of those managerial hirings, you know, don't really change much, but you can see uh, night and day the the difference Rob Thompson's made in Philadelphia this season. Well, it's great to see, not only because, you know, there are some potential parallels there with John Schneider, but also because he's Canadian. And of course, we want to see a Canadian succeed in that role. Um, On the other side, the Atlanta Braves have, I mean, first of all, they're a notable comparison for the Blue Jays because. Alex Anthopoulos is the former Toronto Blue Jays general manager and is kind of, you know, executed a similar idea in Atlanta, at, at least um, 
you know, similar to what we maybe could have assumed he would have done after the 2016 team uh, kind of aged out here in Toronto. Uh, but it's also interesting because they have a bunch of young, good players and the Braves have been very aggressive in locking those young players up. Now, if you look at the totality of the deals, there are going to be a couple of those that probably miss and the players won't develop as you hope. And they, you know, it won't be burnt money, but they won't be the slam dunks that you hope every one of those deals is. Um, When you look at that though, overall, it seems to be a bit of a risk pooling strategy where it's like, Hey, we're going to give out a bunch of these deals. And as long as a couple of them hit, we're going to be in really good shape. Um, What do you make of that Braves team building strategy? and, And you know, that prioritization on, cost certainty and roster certainty moving forward contrasted to, you know, the Jays entering another off season where the big talking point will be, well, Vlad and Bo are going to be more expensive in extension talks. I know they're not exact comparable situations, um, but how do you feel about where the Jays are at in that spot relative to where the Braves are? Yeah, I think that in terms of developing players and constructing the roster, there you struggle to find two more similarly built teams in in the league. Um, you know, and the way you you talked about it as a risk pooling strategy, I think is exactly right. Because I can't guarantee that the Michael Harris contract is gonna uh, is gonna pan out for the Braves, but if Ronald Acuna is is signed for three hundred million dollars less than he's worth, then you can afford to take risks on some of those other guys. And you will like a, a baseball team will never go broke. Uh, signing those pre-arb extensions. So just locking up as many – developing those players is the hard part. And then you lock them up and, and uh, you know, what do they have, like six or seven of these contracts now? And you don't need all six or seven to pan out. You need five of them to pan out, and they probably will. And so, you know, it's just – I mean, it, if you can pull it off, that's the way to do it. Um, in terms of signing these guys to, to long-term contracts, I think an ugly – part of the the pre-arb um, extension business that doesn't get talked a lot is it's a way to leverage people who didn't or way to leverage uh, the interest in generating uh, generational wealth of players who didn't come from money. Right. And that's a, a big thing. Like, you know, if, if your parents were, you know, were dock workers or school teachers or something, and you get offered $6 million or six years for $70 million, then like that's going to change your life and it's going to change the life of everybody you love. And it's hard to turn that down. And, you know, and that's why we see a lot of these, you know, a few years ago, I did a study of, of what I called the worst contracts in, uh, in baseball or like the most, uh, the most underpaid pre-R players who had signed these deals. And they're predominantly Latin American. And, that you know, people who grew up poor in Venezuela or the Dominican Republic, and like it's it's not something that's pretty to talk about, but but uh, um, no, you know, it's the reality of the situation. Have, that, yeah, yeah, teams, have, teams have not been, it, and and you'll see this in the draft too, like sons of major league players or sons of of people who came from wealthy family or uh, from wealthy families are not going to take underslot bonus deals generally. Uh, in the way other athletes might. So, like, that's an, an, a complication for, for Bo and Vlad is that, like, they're going to look at the Austin Riley contract or the Michael Harris contract differently than Austin Riley or Michael Harris. And, like, that's just not something that you can really account for. You know, Kevin Biggio, too. You know, if, uh, you know, he's obviously he's not in that 
uh, in that stratosphere of like franchise players you need to lock up. So, but it, it's just another thing that you need to like, it's one thing to say, just lock these guys up to, to pre-arb deals. You got to get the player to agree. And that's, it's it's easier said than done and not all players are going to think the same way about that kind of money yeah and they're hard conversations to have like you just laid out the the unfortunate reality of it is that yeah teams are going to use leverage points where they can find them and some players have those and some players don't so um they're not perfect comparisons um that's it's a great point that you make um michael i only have you for another minute or so but quickly um what is your biggest question from the outside uh, for the Blue Jays as they head in this offseason? You know, I honestly, I feel really good about them going forward. I'm, I'm, and I'm sorry for giving long answers. I'm going to give another longish one here. No, that's okay. But you know, you, you look at, at where they sit in the division, the Red Sox are heading the wrong direction. I think the Blue Jays are comfortably set up to uh, compete more sustainably uh, than the Rays. And I think the Orioles still have a ways to go. So you look at this as the second best team in the toughest division in the American League, and there are six playoff spots. I would expect them to challenge for the division title even if they don't make a a big leap forward now because they don't have their young star players uh locked up to um these kind of pre-arbitration deals you know long-term contracts like atlanta's been giving out things are getting expensive now and so can you compete you know this is a 90 win team this is probably a comfortable playoff team on 170 175 million dollar payroll now, can you leapfrog the Yankees? Can you compete with the Astros? Can you legitimately be the American, the best team in the American League for $175 million? Or are you going to need to go out and get an, another couple $20 million players on the free agent market or leverage, you know, a, like the A's fire sale, like they did with um, with Matt Chapman or where they were, they were rumored to be doing with Jose Ramirez before he signed that extension? You know, those guys are going to get expensive. So, and this is something that I think the uh, the national baseball media lets Rogers as an owner off the hook for, because we think of Toronto as like, you know, like Cleveland, but North, but re- legitimately, like this is like a Chicago or Los Angeles style market with a big corporate owner that ought to be spending 210, 220 million. And it, it's a, a massive payroll. market that's shown up when, when the team's good in the past. Um, Michael, I'm sorry to Absolutely. cut you off, but we, we got to go. Uh, I got to let you go. Thanks so much for taking the time, man. All right. Thanks for having me on. Michael Bauman of Fangraphs. Uh, sorry to cut that one short. We'll be back tomorrow on the two to three slot. We'll talk to Chris Black. We'll have Ross Atkins end of season media availability as well. Ben Ennis is next with Fan Drive Time. I will talk to you tomorrow on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan.